Hi, listeners. I'm your host, Rebecca Kelly, and welcome back to The Station, a fiction podcast about a girl named Ida who's trapped on board a dying space station and is desperately trying to escape. Before we begin, I want to ask you, my dear listeners, to do me a small favor. If you're enjoying the podcast, please drop into your podcast player of choice and leave it a five-star rating. This helps me reach more people, and I greatly appreciate it. And if you're really loving the content, share it with a sci-fi-loving friend. Okay, back to the story. And when we last left off, we learned about Ale's struggle to figure out a way to fix the broken ion engine on board Ida's space station. The crew at NASA is stumped, and with no manned missions currently available to the space agency, they are running out of options. Plus, Ale is finding himself growing closer and closer to Ida as he fights to save her life. In this episode, We'll join Ida and Ale as they discuss their lives and similar interests. And by the end of the chapter, they'll make a breakthrough in their plans that just might save Ida's life. Are you ready? Let's jump back into the story. Here is chapter 29 of The Station. Good morning, Ida. I hear the voice, but it's distant and faint. At first, I think I'm dreaming. I sit up and my neck immediately aches from the strange sleeping position I was in. It takes me a moment, but I realize that the voice isn't far away at all. My ears clear up a bit and I hear it again. Good morning, Ida. I realize that Nix is standing just outside my sleep compartment. His voice is muffled by the door, which is why he seemed so far away in my semi-conscious state. I must have been sleeping hard. I shake my head to try and work the kinks out of my neck and clear the fog from my brain. I remember that I took a sleeping pill last night, and that's why I'm so fuzzy this morning. Sleep has been difficult for me since I made contact with the ground. My mind won't stop moving, even for a few hours of rest. I'm not going to tell NASA about the sleeping pill. They'll start asking a bunch of questions. They don't need to know everything that's going on up here. Nix, I say. What's up? Why are you up so early? I wanted to let you know that Mr. Ale is on the radio for you, he says. I noticed the notification as I was preparing to go outside and check the hull. Oh, yeah, I say, rubbing my eyes and yawning. It's Monday. Yes, ma'am, he says. Anyway, Mr. Ale is on the radio waiting. I spoke with him briefly, and I must say, I like him. I assured him that you had a long night, and that you were simply sleeping in. He asked that I wake you. Thank you, Nix, I say. I did have a long night. I spent the evening going over and over and over and over the diagnostic results from the engine checks. I did some math and realized that the station orbit is slipping more than I thought it would. It's going to drop much faster than I originally planned, like within a few months. It doesn't help that the sun is particularly active right now, and it's expected to get worse. I'm basically a sitting duck on a pond while a solar typhoon is about to come through. And that's no good for my little space station dragging its rear end along on the upper atmosphere. Actually, I sort of had a little bit of a fit about it. 
I know it's shocking, but I do lose my cool from time to time. Nix must have heard me crying over it. The thing is, I've never had others around to help me. Nu was different. She was pretty much in charge while she was here. I just did what I was told and trusted in her expertise. But since then, I've been totally on my own. It's difficult to adjust to the fact that now I have people looking after me again. Plus, I was never really on a timeline before. I mean, time went along as it always did, and I knew that eventually this would happen. Some huge thing would go wrong with the station, and that would be the end of me. It wasn't a pressing issue, just something that was lingering off in the future. Now it's here, and I must deal with it. From what I can tell, these NASA guys don't know how to fix it either. Nobody has come out and said that, of course, but I can tell. If they knew how to fix the engines, they'd have given me the commands by now. There's no way they'd cut a crisis like this so close. Anyway, a strange thing happened to me last night. I was humming along like usual, doing my research about the engine, when all of a sudden I started screaming. Like, really screaming. I couldn't stop myself. It exploded out of me. I never have emotional outbursts like that. But for some reason, screaming at the top of my lungs felt like the right thing to do as I sat there by myself in the G. Like, maybe if I screamed loud enough, they would actually hear me down on Earth. It wasn't just the screaming either. I was crying, like a baby. Full-on, snot-nosed, out-of-breath, cherry-faced, bawling. I'm sure I sounded like an idiot, and obviously Nix took notice of my outburst, so he is correct. I had a long night. Today my throat is scratchy and I have a screaming headache. Feels like my brain is bulging out of my forehead. It doesn't seem like my sleeping pill-induced coma helped. It was a foggy, dull, dreamless sleep. The kind that doesn't do anything for you, but get you from one time frame to the next. I stand and look in the little mirror on the compartment wall, expecting to see something like an elephant staring back at me, with hanging skin and gray eye sockets. But the face that stares back at me isn't so unfortunate. It looks tired, but otherwise in good health. Then I remember that Ale is waiting for me. I quickly dress and head out of the G, pausing a moment by the med cabinet for some ibuprofen. The gravity differential between the G leaves my head pounding even worse. I make my way up to the service module and turn the radio up on high so I can hear his voice. Good morning, Ale, I say, trying to sound cheerful. Good morning, Ida. I had a little chat with your robot pal. He's fascinating. I have a friend who works in the robotics department. He'd kill to get a look at Nix. Yes, Nix is special, I say. Tell your friend that I'll gladly trade places. He chuckles and says, I'll be sure and pass along the information. Did you create Nix? I know the robot was part of the original mission equipment, but from what I can tell, it didn't have near the capabilities that Nix has now. No, I didn't make him. New did, I say. New is your mother, Millicent, right? He is tentative with the question. He knows I do not like to talk about her, but for some reason... I don't seem to mind that he's asking about her. Maybe yesterday's emotional breakdown cracked some sort of lock inside my head. Yes, I called her new. That was her nickname. Her specialty was programming, and she pretty much built Nix up from scratch. We had the hardware already, but his identity is all in his software, which she wrote. 
He's been pretty much the same throughout my life. I remember as a child, she made some modifications here and there, but she must have built his core systems when I was just a baby because he's always been here with me. You seem to really like him, Ale says. It's an observation, not a question, and so I don't respond to it. He continues. You mentioned his personality. Do you know how she was able to program him with such high-level capabilities? The computers in those nautical units weren't very advanced. I think about this for a second. I know the answer to this question, but I want to make sure my answer is complete and makes sense. Well, I say, the computer that he started with actually had a large computing capacity, more than one might expect in something like him. I'm not sure if they made him as a special unit or what, but he was more advanced than the earlier versions of the Nix systems. That said, you are correct in that she had to add hardware to him to give him more functionality. She used some of the backup processing units from the service module to make him. New was handy like that. The station's computers had more RAM, faster processors, etc. Very interesting, Ali says. And yes, my robotics friend would absolutely love to take a gander at that code. Well, it's complicated, I mean, the code, but I would imagine he'd understand it if it's his specialty. Actually, Ali says... My robotics friend is a woman. Her name is Mila. Oh, I say. She's your girlfriend. No, Ida. She's just a friend. Not my girlfriend, he says. I flush with embarrassment. I think he misunderstood my question. No, no, I, I meant to ask if, if she's a girl who is your friend. I'm sorry. I get confused sometimes, I say. No need to be sorry. I understand how that could happen. And yes, she is a girl who is my friend. Do you have many girlfriends? I, I, I mean, I mean, girls who are friends, I say. I sound like an idiot. This makes him laugh out loud. He says, I do have some friends who are girls. Yes, it's more common than you might think. I'm curious, Ida. How do you know so much about things that happen on the surface? I know that you mentioned the station archives. Tell me more about that. The archives contain a little bit of everything, I say. Movies, music, photographs, scientific studies. There's a comprehensive manual about the station and its various systems. I think it was built into the station computers as a knowledge database for astronauts, since the station was meant to orbit further away with less access to ground communications and internet. It's like they gave the crew a limited version of the internet that would be available all the time and contained anything that NASA thought might be useful. That's part of it, I pause and cock my head to the side. I'm at the very end of the service module. From here, I can see the magnificent views of the VP windows. I see a huge hurricane in the ocean below me. It's a recent storm because this is the first I've seen of it. I can usually see storms brewing for several days before they become their signature spiral, but this one must have formed fast. I gaze at it and continue. But also, New went through the personal laptops of the crew after they left and added anything they left behind. There's a hurricane down there. Yeah, Ali says. That's Hurricane Elrond. I forgot that you've got the bird's eye view. It's going to hit landfall down in the Yucatan here in just a few hours. Do you know what the Yucatan is? The Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico, 
It separates the Caribbean Sea from the Gulf of Mexico. The location of the Chicxulub crater, the remains of the asteroid impact that caused the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. Wow, he says, spoken like any well-respected encyclopedia. I study geography, just like anyone else. And yes, my geography lessons came from an encyclopedia, I say. I don't mean to sound defensive, but it may have come off that way. Of course, he says, no disrespect intended, just trying to get a feel for what you know about the world. Okay, so you had access to a bunch of information. That's good to know. How much do you know about the war? He's got me there. Station archives cover everything before the war, I say. Very little. They told New about the first bombs. Then she lost communication with the ground. That was when the other astronauts left, and she figured out that the communications loss had to do with the satellites. After that, all she could do was watch and observe the surface. There were signs, like the lights going out all over the world, and there were times, especially at the beginning, where she could see the smoke and light flashes from some of the bigger bombings. As time went on, everything started to calm down, and for the longest time, it was quiet. That's why she made the tracking program. She knew that when humans started to launch rockets again, there was a chance that we could get rescued. That's very perceptive of her, Ali says. The nuclear bombs were only the beginning. There was a massive hacker attack by the SA just a day after the bombs. That's what froze up the satellites. Not only did it disable them, but it also fried their boards, rendering them useless. We've only... recently gotten back to a level of communications comparable to what we had before the war. Cell phone networks had to be rebuilt around the globe, and we're still trying to get the satellite networks up to snuff. The SA, I ask? I had never heard that term before, but since I reestablished communications, I had heard several people mention it. They used it as if it was a commonly accepted term. Oh, sorry, he says. That's what we call the South Americans. The attacks originated in South America. Although it really started in Brazil, many of the neighboring countries were taken over and joined at some point. I'll upload some information about the history of the war for you to look through. That way you can understand the magnitude of what we were dealing with down here. Thanks, I say. I appreciate that. Any new information is good. I've been looking through the same old computer files for 18 years. Okay, let's lighten the subject matter, he says. I want to get to know you better. You mentioned that you have lots of media on board. What's your favorite movie? I have to put some thought into that one, I say. Well, that depends on my mood, I guess. The first and second Avatar movies. I wasn't so much a fan of the third one, though. I'm a sucker for science fiction. All eight of the Alien movies were great. I mean, some of them were better than others, but I like a good scare from time to time. Superhero movies. Anything with Iron Man in it, because he reminds me of Nyx. The Princess Bride. Because, you know, the love story. Huh, Ali says. He sounds genuinely interested in this topic. My favorite movie of all time is The Shining. It's an old one, but what can I say? I'm a sucker for Stephen King. I haven't seen that one, I say. I read the book, though. My favorite Stephen King book is Carrie. When I was younger, I would try and make things move with my mind, just to see, you know? He chuckles and says, yeah, I know. 
Don't worry, you're not the only one who's tried and failed to make things move. If you could manifest the ability to telekinetically move your space station into a higher orbit, well, that would help us all out a lot. I am quiet when he mentions this. I know they can't figure out how to fix the engines, but nobody's come right out and said it yet. In a way, I appreciate it that he's being honest with me, and I understand his frustration. He should have heard me screaming about it last night. No, scratch that. I'm really glad he didn't hear that. That would have been really embarrassing. I say, yeah, the engines are tough. I know your people have been working on them as hard as they can. I've tried everything I can think of, too. I just don't think they can be repaired, at least not with what I have up here. He sighs. It's a tired sigh, the kind you let loose when you're mentally exhausted. I can tell that my seemingly hopeless situation bothers him. He says, Ida, you don't have to do that stuff yourself. I mean, I agree that you are the expert on the systems of the Delta, but I don't want you stressing out about it. Leave the stressing to me, okay? Is my situation stressful for you? I ask. Of course it is. I care about what happens to you, he says. You care? I ask. It's strange because I can't really wrap my mind around someone caring about me like that. It doesn't seem real to me. Probably too much, he admits. A flash of blood rises up to my cheeks, and I blush hard. I press my hand to my face and feel the heat. The thing is, Ida, he continues. Then he pauses, like he's trying to find the right words. You fascinate me. I want to open up your head and read all the thoughts inside. I know it's strange for me to admit that. I've only known you for a few days, but I can't help myself. Does that make sense? No, I say, honestly. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't think there's anything exceptional about me. I'm just ordinary. But the things you've seen and done, he sounds frustrated by my response. He even lets out an exasperated groan before he continues. Okay, let's change the subject. I don't know if anyone's talked to you about our manned space program yet, but we've been concentrating on fixing your engines because we just don't have the technology up and running to send a ship up to rescue you, Ida. I want to be transparent with you about this, so you're in the loop the whole way. It'll be at least 12 months before we can have our prototype ready to fly. We've tried checking with other space agencies around the world too, but his voice trails off. After a pause, he continues. One option we've been toying with is to send a supply ship that could dock with the Delta. It would be equipped with thrusters, and it could push the Delta up into a higher orbit, and, and it could also carry the tools and supplies you'd need to fix the engines and other systems on board. It would take us a few months to put together, but it would be quicker than a manned ship. If we can't get the engines fixed within the next few days, we'll pull the trigger on that plan. Unless, he adds, unless the Russians have a spare Soyuz laying around. Soyuz, I say, surprised to hear the word. It occurs to me that perhaps he doesn't know. Yeah, he says, the Soyuz was a vessel that I interrupt him. I know what a Soyuz is, Ale. There's one here. He breathes in sharply as if he means to speak, but then he's silent for several moments. 
I continue. I'm sorry I didn't say anything before, but I just figured you knew. Now he interrupts me, his voice almost shaking. Wait, what did you just say? I repeat. Ali, there is a Soyuz docked to the station right now. Thanks for listening, sci-fi fans. That wraps up part two of The Station, and the next episode will begin part three of our story, and will get us another step closer to a possible rescue scenario for Ida. You don't want to miss it. See you then. Bye.